I was thinking about this whole earthquake thing. And I was a little captivated by, um, I'm not a real academic dude, you know that. Um, but I was kind of captivated by this whole idea of movement. And I was thinking about, you know, what happened? Did I say hurricane or earthquake? Okay, good. I was thinking hurricane. Um, just this whole idea, and I was instantly shot back into um, one of my social studies classes that taught on this, the, um, how, how earthquakes even happen and the shifting and the movements of the earth and how powerful that is and how unpredictable that is and, and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up just kind of getting on the computer, which is an amazing thing. I'm really thankful Al Gore invented it. And, um, and I Googled seismic activity just to see what in the world is really going on. I just wanted to understand it a little bit better. And, and uh, I was just, I, I was looking at, uh, is it seismology? I'm, yeah. And thinking about, you know, how this, how this works and what happens and the kind of motion that happens with this. And what, what I found is there's three kinds of movement that happens from uh, in, a, in, in, an earth, in an earthquake, okay? It's really interesting for me. So if it's not to you, you you'll never get this time back in your life. So there's three kinds of waves, okay? There's pressure wave, they call it, and there's um, shear waves, all right? And then there's surface waves, okay? The pressure waves, they also call it primary waves, which is the real direct, it's the fastest moving movement. It's the quickest. It just shoots straight out from wherever, whatever happens, and it's just, it's this primary motion, this pressure wave. Okay, the secondary, the shear wave, it's, it's called secondary wave. It's the S wave. Okay, it travels slower, but it's that perpendicular movement, you know, kind of collateral. So you got the primary this way, a little bit slower this way, and then you have what they call surface waves, which travels extremely slow, okay? Um, um, but as it's guided by the surface of the earth, and it literally says that the energy is trapped between the surface of the earth and wherever it took place. So it's about a depth. It's about depth of movement, right? So you have movement directly forward. You have movement, you know, uh, perpendicular, sideways. And then you have um, depth of movement. And the depth of movement is one of the most important things to measure. Did you know that the, the earthquake in, um, in, in Haiti was way less... Uh, powerful than the one uh, in Chile. The one in Chile this weekend was way more powerful um, than the one in Haiti, but the one in Haiti did way more damage. Why is that? It's not, to be honest with you, it's not just because um, their structures weren't as strong and things like that. I know that the Free Methodist Church that we work with there, they had a five-story building that was built to like San Francisco standards and it just went to nothing. But, but the truth is, is that the, um, the earthquake in Haiti the center of it started with seven miles deep, okay? And the one uh, in Chile was 21 miles deep. So this, this surface wave, well, the energy was trapped. The shallower it is, the closer it is to the surface, the closer it is to where everything is, the more energy, the more damaging it is versus the one that's deeper and it doesn't have as much surface damage, even though it, measured higher on the Richter scale. Isn't that interesting? That movement has these three different directions at three different speeds and different, they impact you differently depending on 
its depth. So, movement. Um, I think it's interesting that the closer it is to our surface, whatever it is, forget earthquake, our lives change, God's movement in our lives, all these things, the closer it is to the surface, the more it just disrupts things, and the closer it is to us, the more it disrupts things. And I was looking at this, uh, this, this impact of Christ in our lives and the impact of Christ in the early church and what was going on in, in that environment. And, um, and I was just thinking, you know, outside of the resurrection and outside of the ushering in of the Holy Spirit, I don't know that there's been an occurrence so close to the surface um, that has created more movement and more change in faith as we know it than what we see in Acts 9. That it was just, it was a powerful moment where it was like there's these plates, you know the plates that shift, what are the, the tectonic plates? It was like there's these three plates that existed. One was Jesus in the middle, and, and then you have a guy like Saul, who was a Pharisee, who um, was Jewish and, and was on this side and didn't understand what Christ was doing. And then you have the disciples on this side who understood, but they were all just kind of, they, they kind of existed. There was some overlap over here with Jesus and the disciples, but they all kind of existed out. And then all of a sudden, something happened in Acts 9 where all of those plates just they, they just kind of shifted and they just came up on top of each other and they were just all in this single moment where they started to press on each other and their lives began to collide and all this stuff was happening. And I was thinking, this, as we look back on the early church, is a significant, significant moment in Acts 9. And in August, we were in the book of Acts and we jumped forward to Acts 9 and Matthew taught once and I taught twice on Acts 9. We spent three weeks in Acts 9 mostly speaking about discipleship and the life of Paul and his transformation and things like that. I want to look at it today again from the perspective of what's going on in the church. All right? Because I think this is a very significant... I was going to skip over it, to be honest with you, because we already done it. But I think this is a very significant moment where all these things, this huge, these huge foundations are just pressed together. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you go separate from one another. I'm going to press you into each other. And you're just going to have to deal with this. Because you don't like this guy and he doesn't like you and you don't understand each other. But through this tension and this pressure and everything, we're going to do something awesome. So we're going to look at this. So here's what I want to do. All right? We're going to look at this in three perspectives. And uh, we're going to follow something that Matthew reminded us on last week. That you have a couple characters really in this scripture. You have Saul or who becomes Paul. Okay? You got this dude. And maybe we can identify with him. Maybe if we're, um, we're set in our way or maybe we're, I, don't, I hate to use the word legalistic, but I've been legalistic in my life, in my faith before a, a lot. I probably still am in, in many ways. I try not to be, but maybe we can identify with Paul. Then maybe as a believer, you can identify with the disciples in some way, looking at this threat that was happening to the church. And maybe you feel like you can identify on this side. And whether that's the disciples or Barnabas or Ananias or Whoever it was, you can identify with that character. But then, ultimately, you have to come back and realize that all Scripture is truly about Christ and his plan to redeem and to restore us and the world. And so, you have these three characters, these three themes, and these three threads. So, we're just going to read through the Scripture. Here's what I want to do. You guys, okay, I want you, when we read it, I want you to think about the disciples. I want you to be thinking about, okay, if I was Peter, okay, hearing about Saul... What, what would I be learning from this passage? 
All right, I want you to be thinking about this as we read it. The, his perspective, get in his shoes, and I am going to ask you to say something in a little bit, okay? You guys, so you two sections, you guys over here, I want you to think about being Saul, going through this experience. What this would be like, what it would feel like, what, okay, got it, Saul. You guys here, think about the, pat, or the movement of, of Christ. What's going on? What is God doing in this relationship, through this interaction, things like that? So be thinking about this, okay? If we get anything from this, this will be fine. Anyways, all right? Everybody's scared. Um, just think of one thing, okay? And if you talk longer than like five seconds, I'm going to cut you off. So don't worry about having some big explanation or whatever. But All right, is that okay? Can we do that? All right. Now, open to Acts 9. We're just going to read this through. I'm going to try and teach it through a little bit and um, give you a couple things from this I think is important for us to understand and try not to give away too much of what we can move forward with. I want to pray again. God, let us see your truth. Let's, don't let us get in the way of it, but I pray that you would reveal it. God, each one of us, we need to hear from you in a specific way, and we don't even know why, but you do. And so will you, will you bring that to the front? In Jesus' name, amen. So Saul, reminder, Saul was killing Christians. He had all the authority to go and put Christians in jail. He oversaw, approved of the stoning of Stephen, which was the first Christian martyr, just two chapters ago, okay? And here is Saul. He's gotten permission. Uh, he's on his way to Damascus, and he is going to persecute Christians. He is going to bring them to jail. That's what his job was, okay? So he's on the way, and the story's about him meeting Jesus, okay? And then fast forward, remember that God changed his name to Paul and uses him to write over half the New Testament. All of the letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, all of those are letters from Paul to the church at Corinth, at Ephesus, at, okay? So just a reminder, God used him, this dude, murderer, to do all this. So this is, this is the experience of these sh- plates shifting together. <clears throat> it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That phrase, I like that. They call it the way, and they even capitalize it in most scriptures, the way. That's kind of cool, isn't it? You belong to the way. You go to church? No, I'm a part of the way. You know, that word way literally means road. I like that. There's only one thing you do on a road. You know, you travel along, you're on a journey, you know. Usually you're in a car with someone, maybe you're cruising along alone, listening to the tunes, jamming out. Maybe you're hitchhiking, I don't know. But there's, it's, it's a journey, you're going somewhere if you're on the road. So, so on the way, it says, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, very specific, it's you, dude, Saul, twice. Why do you persecute me? I think it's interesting there that he, Jesus doesn't say, why do you persecute my church? He says, he says, Saul, why do you pick on my followers? Because that's what he's doing, right? He goes, he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. That's an interesting question. You just said, you're Lord. He's Lord. So why, who are you, Lord? Um, at this moment, I'm not sure he knows fully who he is, or Jesus wouldn't have had to tell him I'm Jesus, but what he recognizes is that he was the Lord, that he had authority. That word Lord means authority, okay? In that, it's from the word uh, uh, 
kuros, which is the word authority. What, what it's saying is he instantly recognized the power and the authority that whatever this was talking to him, saying, why are you persecuting me? That it was a, it was a higher, it was something big. It wasn't like a dude hiding behind the bushes, okay? And so he clarifies, he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now I want you to get up and go to this city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. That's from the original Greek word that means speechless. They were dumbfounded. They didn't, they didn't have any. Okay. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground. He heard a light, right? He, heard, he saw a light and he heard a sound and it floored him. He had to get up. That's some light. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Could you imagine what would be going through your mind in those three days? You know those little deals you put on? What are they? You put on here and you can click through the pictures. What are those called? Viewfinders? Oh, I did that? Oh, man. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Oh, snap. You were there? Could you imagine those three days? I wouldn't eat or drink anything either. Um, I am busted. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Not the same Judas, by the way. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Saul from Tarsus? In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias, pretty specific, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias said, are you crazy? I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go. He, I, the exclamation point, go emphatically. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Listen, I want you to pause here for a second. This is a very important part of this scripture. Because I went back and I, I was studying where the Gentiles are mentioned throughout scripture. And there's a promise in Isaiah that, um, that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. You know who the Gentiles are? All non-Jewish people. Most of us. And so he's saying there's going to be light, there's going to be hope for people who are not of the chosen nation of Israel. And so this is good news to you and me, okay? This is really, really good news. And he said, I'm going to do this. But remember, Jesus and Matthew told the disciples, I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. That was the command. Don't go to the Gentiles. It's not time. And so here for the first time in Scripture, God is telling Ananias, Saul, his ministry is going to be for the rest of the world. That's a huge, huge shift in the story. All right? If there's ever been good news, guys, this is it. Oh, part of it. Where was I? Verse 16, he tells him, I don't know if God felt like this was something that would make him feel good about it or what, but he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's what he says. I'll show him how much he will suffer for my name. That word suffer, um, 
The only other place this word is used in this tense throughout the Bible is when it talks about Jesus' suffering. Literally, just, it means to endure. How much he will endure. How much has to be endured in order for what God is doing to happen. How much motion, how much pain, how close it is to the surface, direct impact, collateral impact. In his life, he's going to realize that this message is worth dying for. If we would get that, it would change everything. Don't you think? Really would. We know it. We don't get it. I don't. don't. All right. Isaiah 49.6, by the way, is the reference if you want to look that up. And then Jesus in Matthew 10.5 talks about the Gentiles as well. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul... Um, that's a great title for Saul. That communicates a lot. That word brother, it means believer. All right? So he, at that moment, it was this acceptance. It was that bringing in. Even though he was scared to death, everyone else was still going to be scared to death. There's a lot. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So God was just affirming this God movement in his life. Verse 18, immediately Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. It never says he could see as good as he used to. And in fact, there are other scriptures that talk about his thorn in his flesh. Many believe that the thorn in his flesh, and he said, I have begged God to take away, but he won't take away. Many believe that it's his eyesight. He still has to walk with some faith and doesn't have this sharpness. And the reason we say that is that some of the scripture says, you can tell by the size of my lettering and when I, I've written this by my own hand. So some, some really believe that I don't, I don't know, but I think it's an interesting thing that I'm not sure God gave him back everything. I think it was a constant reminder. I forget sometimes. I forget. I'm like, God, I'm never going to forget you just did that. And it's like, what was it again? You know? I think that was a gift. I'm not giving away answers. Okay, immediately something like scales fell off from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach. The word preach means to proclaim, to be a herald. To be one who proclaims what is going on. Not just stands on a soapbox and yells at people. Throws thunderbolts at them. All right. In the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. He just believed. He's like, okay, all right, Jesus, you are who you said you were. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. Why? Scripture says he had the spirit. And baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Of course they did. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Now let's remember something, and this is going to give it away. Um, you know, they were, tr- they were protecting what they knew and, and what they truly believed, and they lived their life for it. It wasn't like, hey, I don't like this guy, let's kill him. It was really something they were trying to honor God with. 
But Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. He already had some disciples, those who were around him believed in him and they protected him. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is interesting. Remember, the disciples stayed. When the church was scattered, it said everyone but the apostles were scattered. And they preached the word everywhere uh, that they stayed. And so Paul came there. And it says, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. That would have stunk if you're Saul. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that he, the Lord had spoken to him. And so he brought it together and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and, and sent him off to Tarsus. Which Saul of Tarsus, remember? Going back home. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in fear of the Lord. Isn't that a great story? Very thankful for that. So, if you're Saul, if you're from the perspective... Who's Saul? You guys? So, for the perspective of that, what do you learn? If you think, okay... What can I learn from Saul's perspective here? Give me some thoughts. And I'll write down here whether you're wrong or right. I'm kidding. Come on. We don't have a whole lot of time. Guilt. Why? Okay, that's a good one. He learned faith. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. I have a picture... And I dare, I have a picture that a friend of mine uses when he talks about zealousness and what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a really hairy guy in a speedo and he has a huge gold cross on his chest. And it's like, okay, is this guy sold out? Yeah. Is he zealous? Yeah. Is he believing himself? Yeah. Do you want to hang out with this dude? Uh Uh-uh. And sometimes it's just not the right strategy. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you, Susan. That was good. All right. What else? Power of change. Because we're really good and we can do this. And no. Power of change in the Holy Spirit and what God does. What else? Something from white shirts. Anybody? Fear? Yeah. I wonder, Paul. Paul had all this authority and power. He was a, a, a military leader. He was brilliant. He knew everything. And all of a sudden now, he's probably scared to death. He didn't have a home. He was caught between two sides. He didn't have a team. A home or away jersey, gone. Right? I bet. Dependency. Desperation. What else? That What? Yeah, that, I'm glad that never happens in church today. I'm so glad that we just get all along and nobody criticizes us the way we do things. That's so good. I'm glad we're beyond that. Anything else before we move on? You've been wanting to say it, say it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, isn't that funny? Isn't it, isn't it interesting that... Um, we, want, we say, God, we want you to move in our lives, but you, you, 
you really pray for it, you really want it, it'll, it can hurt, you know, but it'll change you forever, I think. Stubborn, hard-headed. All right, let's move on. What about from the disciple side, the apostle side, what do we learn from this story? Mm, they were judgmental. They didn't, they didn't believe. They were, what's that? Reluctant and trusting. Yeah. What? Yeah, fear. Yeah. God, I want to trust you, but listen, on this one, right? What else? You're supposed to allow uncomfortable silence, but when I, we won't do that. We'll move on. Good. Anybody else have a thought on that? Okay, good. Then from Jesus and his movement, what's going on here? What do you learn from him? I, by the way, I think there was less on that end than there was on this ending way. So, all right. I've only got like three things. So, yes. Yeah. Did you guys hear that? That Jesus just acts in ways that are completely above and different than we might think he would. Right? We just smited him dead right there or something, right? He doesn't deserve to be a part of this. What else? Perfect forgiveness. Regardless, yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, and what did he himself said he was chief among sinners, right? Later. He goes, I can't boast. In anything, I boast in Christ. So Paul said, that's what it takes sometimes. What else? Yeah. 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 Yeah, so Paul was the one that went on the missionary journeys that then did the first church plants that spread into the world and even wrote the book of Romans to the Christians in Rome before he went there to straighten them out a little bit. And so, I mean, this was an amazing thing that it's almost as if God knows what he's doing. That's good. Yeah. Something else? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good thing. One of the things that stood out to me, and I mentioned it earlier, was the fact that Jesus said, you're persecuting me, not the church, not the whatever. Isn't it funny how sometimes we feel like when we go through times or someone points, we feel like they're persecuting us or we're, instead of Jesus? What hit me was, Brandon, if they're persecuting you, then you're in the way. You've got something out of line, Brandon, with the way you live your faith and the way you do things. Because... They should be persecuting him. And what I found is, is when we do drop the judgment or just try to be vulnerable or just whatever, not many people accuse you. Other Christians may. Okay, but not many people who don't have, you know, faith or they rarely accuse you then. What we're learning is that, I mean, you hear this all the time, that there are people who just, they love, they love Jesus. They're just, or at least they're willing to discover Jesus. They're struggling with the posture of the church. I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying everything, but it, it happens. That was the thing that hit me is, do I get persecuted or does Jesus get persecuted in my life? Mark? Um, 
Well, I mean, it just, you know, the, the government leaders for uh, all, all the, the Pharisees, everyone, all the leaders there were religious leaders. It was, it was not separation of church and state. So everything that they had was on Judaism, their, their, their faith in God, and they believed it was completely blasphemous. Well, it was his job. He was a military leader. And yeah, and he did. He said he liked it. He, he admitted it, that he went out and before God, they wanted to end what was happening. Okay, and so, um, again, one of my biggest struggles is I grew up thinking that these, you know, all Pharisees were bad guys and all said whatever, and then you look at him, you go, man, I, I get that. I, I, could I, you know, while zealousness sometimes gets you in trouble, do I have enough passion or, or desire or whatever to fight for the things of God? Um, so that's, that's the key there. Um, Here, here's the thing, kind of transition in, and we'll close out, that I was thinking about the scripture. I, you know, I bet you the disciples kind of got to the point, they were like, guys, isn't this cool? Not before Saul. Isn't this cool? We're living in community, and this is, we're just giving with each other, and we're fellowshipping together, and we, we got a guitar in the corner, and we sing songs, and, and we're beginning to get favor with people, and we're just, just us and Jesus, and all this is happening, and the church is moving. I bet you, I wonder if they kind of got to the point where they're like, I think we're starting to get this figured out, and then all of a sudden Saul comes. And it just messes everything up. And then he ends up getting to run the show. And I just wonder, this whole journey, what God is doing in this, if it just kind of disrupted what they, they knew a little bit about this thing that Jesus said, we was going to build my church. Because remember, Jesus said to Peter, he said, I will build my church, not you. you you'll be a part of it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I want you to focus on the kingdom and I will build my church. Never does, never, never, never does Jesus give us that responsibility. He says, just love God and love people seek my kingdom so i think i just wonder they look at that they kind of realize wow we really need one another in every capacity this is wow this is way bigger than we ever dreamed of god doing something even outside these walls wow we better get our hearts right because god is really really uh moving so I was thinking about that scripture in Matthew 16, 17 that I just, Jesus has just put that on my heart like crazy that you don't, as a pastor, you don't build your church. I build my church and I give, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, says the church that he builds. So however this church or our is built, it has to be on the things of Christ or it will be in vain. It will fall. It will not be what God wants it to be. And he says, but I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Something like that. All right? So I'm sitting here and I'm making this connection with upon this rock I will build my church. And this is the early claim of Christ. It's the early promise of Christ. And it's really an early insight to our role. All right? So I, I, I just want to give you three qu- really quick points. I'm really just going to read them to you. Just chew on and think about, about the church that Jesus builds. Because this is the church that he's building here, okay? Three things. It, really, it's confidence, correction, and kingdom. All right? Confidence that the church that Jesus builds will prevail over whatever he's doing. His movement in that, we could trust it, whether it's through Saul, unlikely suspects, or you and me, unlikely suspects. That if we allow him, if we seek the things of him, that what he builds will prevail. Over what? That's up to God. All right? That the church that Jesus builds will prevail over all opposition, all persecution, all change, all personal suffering. Okay? 
The second thing, correction, that the church that Jesus builds overcomes its own personal baggage. Saul had some. The disciples had some. We all have it. Whether it's from other churches or other believers or other non-believers or whatever, we all have baggage and expectations. And we've got to just go, okay, church that Jesus builds overcomes that and seeks what he wants. I pray that that's our commitment. All right, and the last thing is that the church that Jesus builds is about his kingdom, not our church. All right, that last, that last uh, verse there, verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church, not a church or a couple of them or whatever. All right. They enjoyed time of peace, and it was strength, and it was encouraged, and it grew in numbers. The American church right now is decreasing by 2% every year, which in 10 years, that's 20%, 20 years, do the math. It's, it's in a disarray right now overall. I really believe it's because we're so focused on ourselves and we're not concerned about what God is doing in other churches, um, outside of the walls of church, in his kingdom. I really th- we talk about kingdom a lot. I really think that God is calling us to live outside of ourselves a lot. And in fact, that's all he really told us to do. <laughs> and then this is a promise, I believe, that they will, that they will then enjoy peace, encouragement, and the spirit. And understanding. Uh, so I have a friend. Actually, it was Hugh Halter. He wrote The Tangible Kingdom. Some of you guys, we've gone through the TK Primer. Um, he said he was watching TV one late, late one night, and he got a little too comfortable on the couch, and he fell asleep, like midnight, right? And he says about one in the morning, he woke up, and he heard this sound. And he was like, what in the world is that? You know? And so he went back to sleep. About two or three in the morning, he woke up again. And it was that sound. And he just, oh gosh, you know, went back to sleep. Because when you're asleep, instead of figuring stuff out, you're just like, oh, what do I do? I got to go to the bathroom. What do I do? I'll just lay here. <laughs> um, it's just big dilemmas in life. So he woke up again, like at 4.30 in the morning. And he's like, okay, I'm done. And he gets up and he goes, I need to find, what is this? And he says, he walks outside. And he goes, as he gets the wall, he puts his, and he walks in, he goes into the kitchen area, he's like, eh. and he went into the laundry room area, and sitting on top of the washing machine was a hamster in a cage on a wheel. And he goes, huh, we bought a hamster. And he goes, how you doing, little buddy? And he looked at it, and he goes, wow, he's been doing that all night. Just going nowhere. And he just doesn't even know it. <laughs> Let's pray. God, please don't let us be a hamster in our own lives, spiritually, in our church. Don't let us do that. We don't want to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.